Uh, we're in a series in the book of Philippians, and we're in the eighth part of that series. I think they're going to be 11 altogether. Um, and the subtitle for this message is, What Happened to Paul? What Happened to Paul? And our text is Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. And uh, before we engage the, the word, if you would join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to this text in the third chapter of Philippians, it is my prayer that our love as a church family would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight that we would be able to discern what really matters and that we would be pure and blameless so that Uh, for the day of Christ, filled, Lord, so that we'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Make it so, Lord, and use this sermon, I pray, to help. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, our text is Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read the text beginning in verse number 1. If you would join me, it'll either be on the screen or you can uh, look in in your Bible if you have it with you. Further, My brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have Reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But what, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, rubbish, that I might gain, or that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the Basis, basis of faith. I want to know Christ and the power, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Sorry about that. That was me. It's not easy being green. Now, depending on your age and the context in which you grew up, that line can mean one of a couple of different things. For children of the 70s and 80s, it's about a green frog named Kermit and his melancholy song that essentially carried the meaning, it's it's not easy being me. In the corporate environment of the 90s and early 2000s, it spoke of that tension between profitability on the one hand and sustainability on the other, or we might call creation care on the other. If the costs of being green are too high, it might mean going out of business. It's not easy being green. Today it speaks of the extra price you might pay or the effort that you personally might have to give to live in a way that is sustainable and won't just fill our seas and land with more plastic or other permanent trash. It it is something that many happily embrace. In fact, for many, it's now easy to be green. Now, you can see how that one line, that one phrase, that one frog has been used to communicate what was one message, now a completely different message. Both messages are fine. In this case, they're perfectly good. They're just different messages. They all started with Kermit. Some are unaware of that. Others just think that Kermit was singing about environmentalism. And they have no idea that 
he was singing about being blue, which in his case was being green. It's true. And, and the reality is we have no idea what that expression will mean 50 years from now. 50 years from now, it may mean something entirely different to people who hear it. And that's just the reality of how things work. Well, the good news is, is that Kermit's song has no eternal value. The, the loss of the original idea is not a real loss. But when the same thing happens with Scripture, even if, even if the new understanding is helpful for other truths, it often means that we have lost the truth that was originally communicated. A truth that, in fact, does have eternal significance. Philippians 3, of course, you might suspect, I propose, and particularly our text, verses 1 through 11, is one such text. A text that we have read through the wonderful lens of the Reformation, and, and therefore we've, we've arrived at truths of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, or salvation not by the works of the law, but as a gift from Christ. Since it's language, much like it's not easy to be green, so easily morphed into environmentalism, the language of this text uh, so well articulates important gospel truths, we've rarely stopped to ask if it had a different original meaning. Was there ever a green frog feeling blue who sang a song behind it? My answer to that question is yes, I think there was a Kermit DePaul behind this that we should get to know. Now, in saying that, let me be perfectly clear. I think the wonderful truths that I have even preached from this text that I now realize, well, great truths, wrong text, I think those truths are vital and very important. I preach those truths. I love those truths. But I also realize that I missed opportunities when I was preaching those things from this text to preach what this text was actually about. And so we want to gain that as we endeavor to. So we'll explore our text today under three headings. Who are the dogs? Uh, not who let the dogs out. Who are the dogs? Who was Paul? And what happened to Paul? So those are our three headings. And uh, the first one, who are the dogs? If you would read with me again under Philippians, uh, or under, in verses 1 and 2 of Philippians 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, this, this text has troubled commentators for centuries, and um, it may shock you, but my sermon today will not settle that for everybody, I, just so you know. Um, <clears throat> What are, for instance, one of the things that troubles them? What are the same things about which Paul is writing again? The implication, at least most scholars that I've read say that the implication of the original language is that it's something that he's already written about in the same letter. And yet you get to chapter 3 and they think, man, he's suddenly changed topics. I mean, like, wow, what's he talking about in relation to what he has talked about? In fact, some think that the whole chapter is just like added in. It doesn't belong. I'll make a different case today, needless to say. I will offer that chapter 3 is a writing again. No trouble for me to write the same thing, a writing again. Um, <clears throat> of what Paul has been saying since chapter 1, verse 27, at least since then, maybe the whole letter. Th this time through, he describes his own status and power as a Jew, and then how Christ transformed the goal, the, the prize to be gained that he was after, how Christ changed that on him. So that all that power and status was now used for something very different. Amen. It's my mom. She says amen. Fortunately, you know, it's great. But feel free to join her in those moments. <laughs> Paul's goal in using himself as an illustration is the same goal he had when he talked about Timothy and Epaphroditus. It's that we, the church, would follow this example. And we see that at the end of our text today. But who are these dogs? Who are these dogs? Are they? They're basically two options. I mean, you, you, maybe others, but really two. One, they're Judaizers, uh, which means a Christians who were Jewish Christians who were 
telling Gentiles that they had to come under the Mosaic law. They had to be circumcised, lived under the food laws, etc., etc., like you had in Galatians. Remember the problem in Galatians? That problem. They're saying that's the problem here. Could be. Um, there's no evidence outside of verse 2 that Paul was in any way concerned about Judaizers in the Philippian church in their context. Um, and if, if that's his concern, everything that he says after that really doesn't seem to combat it. it, it it's like, oh, here's this great problem you need to be worried about, and then uh, kind of flat after that. It, it doesn't really speak to that. So I don't think that's it. I will offer that they are Jews, yes, but they're Jews who were persecuting the church out of zeal for the purity of the Jewish religion. They weren't Christian Jews. They were Jews, just like you see in the book of Acts, the Jews that, 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 that in fact, right, when Paul and, and Silas and, had, and Timothy with them had gone to Philippi, Macedonian call, uh, then they were thrown in jail by the authorities of that city, and then they left there and they went to Thessalonica. Timothy stayed behind and kind of went back and forth there. But they go to Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, it was the Jews, the leaders of the synagogue, that began to persecute them and eventually chase them out of town. And then they arrive in Berea, and those Jews from Thessalonica had come down to Berea to begin doing the same kind of persecution against them to put a stop to them. That's the kind of Jewish persecution. The Philippians would be familiar with that from at least 11 years prior, but arguably since then they had encountered that kind of persecution themselves. If, if they're willing to follow Paul to Berea, they might be willing to backtrack and go to Philippi and begin to persecute the church there as well. Remember, during that time when Paul was being persecuted by the Jews, the Philippians were sending money through Timothy back and forth. They're bringing money to him to help support him because they knew he needed the support because of the persecution and the effect it was having. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, Paul spoke of the opposition that they faced and how they were to respond to that opposition. It was outside opposition. I think it was the same opposition that he is now speaking of here. If Paul is returning to a discussion about that opposition, it makes good sense of beware of the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators, if they are, in fact, not Christians, but a Jewish group persecuting the church. The, the beware is maybe a bit like when Jesus says to the disciples, they get in the boat, and they're out in the boat right, and he says, beware of the yeast of the, or the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He wasn't afraid that somehow, you know, this bread would hit him in the head. He, he was afraid that, that maybe the same wrong attitudes they had would somehow infect the disciples. The beware was not that those people are your enemies. The beware was watch out that it's not in you as well. And I wonder if here what Paul is doing, it, because remember, right after he mentions the outside opposition, you get into chapter 2, what does Paul do? He starts talking about unity within the body and, of course, grumbling and complaining and arguing amongst themselves in the body. And he begins to root that out because sometimes outside opposition isn't our biggest problem. It's the opposition from within that is the biggest problem. And, and I think here what Paul is doing is he's returning back to that discussion of the outside opposition only to then make them realize you need to be aware that those who oppose you, that you recognize as enemies, that that, that same thing's not going on in your own hearts. So it's not just beware of those dogs. It might be beware of the dog that's within you. They're called dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. That, that, interesting to me, there is possibly, and you know, again, I, I have to lay this out as possibly, there's possibly one verse that, that Paul had in mind because there is a verse that, that mentions at least two of them clearly of those three labels. And I would argue, as you'll see in a moment, that it may well allude to the third of those. Psalm 22:16. You probably don't know that psalm by number, but you might know the first verse quite well because Jesus quoted it when he was on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that, that psalm is clearly a prophetic description of Jesus on the cross. It does other things, and it's more than that. And in some sense, it's not less than that, but it is that. And, and yet it, there we see 
in verse 16, in the middle of this description of what we can now see was a description of what Jesus experienced on the cross, Paul says, or, or, or the psalmist says, because many dogs, there's the first one, encircled me, a gathering of evildoers, there's the second one, surrounded me, they gouged my hands and my and feet. Now we normally read, I'm reading that from a, a translation of the Greek Old Testament. We normally read that as they pierced my hands and my feet. Same thing, but I, I like this because the gouged my hands and my feet might help you see the allusion to mutilators of the flesh. Mutilators. So if what I'm proposing is true, then then. I would suggest that what Paul is, is doing is he's referring to those persecutors of Jesus who had him crucified, who handed him over to Pilate, and who began to persecute the church, of which Paul was one. And, and part of the, the issue that we have to see is that the, the suffering of Jesus and the suffering of those who are persecuted are one and the same suffering. The persecution of Jesus and the, person of the persecution of the church are one and the same thing. The rejection of Jesus is the rejection of the church, and therefore we are rejected. And so, if Paul's going back to the cross and talking about their, the opposition they face, in Paul's mind, they're one and the same thing, because that's where it all began. And so the Psalm 22:16 not only applied backward into the Hebrew life, but it applies forward into our lives from the cross as well. Christian persecution began at the cross and continues to this day. So I am suggesting then that these dogs, these uh, evildoers, these mutilators are the opposition that the Philippians are facing. And they are the ones, the Philippian church, are the ones being opposed or persecuted. Verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision. We, we, we the ones that they are opposing, chapter 1, verse 28, the ones that they are opposing, we who are the circumcision, we who serve by God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. We, the church, the believing community, the ones being persecuted, are the circumcision. Now what does Paul mean by the circumcision? I mean, we don't generally call groups of people the circumcision in our day, so it might be an odd term, right? But it wasn't an odd term in their day, certainly not for Paul. The circumcision, as a title, is a reference to the fact that it would refer to, in the Jewish mind, the true people of God. So to say that we are the circumcision is the same thing as saying we are the true covenant people of God. We are the heirs of that covenant from given to Abraham. That's us. Okay? We see this in Ephesians chapter 2. You may be familiar with this verse a little more, where it says, Therefore, Paul writes to the Ephesians, Remember that formerly you, you Ephesian Gentile believers, who, who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, there's that, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What, what, is, what is Paul doing to the Jewish persecutors? He's turning the tables on them. They are persecuting because they are the circumcision. They are heirs of the covenant of promise. And you Gentiles are trying to make us impure. And so they, they were persecuting them for the purity of Israel. And yet now Paul is flipping that on them and saying, no, actually, we... We who are the circumcision, we, we who are those who worship and serve. And that word, who worship, it, it could be who serve by the Spirit. It's both ways. We worship, serve. Both are perfectly good translations. The catch is, is in English, you got to pick. <laughs> they had a word that did both, but it, we got to pick. And, and so it's perfectly good either way. And it was a term that was used to describe the priests and their service. So when Paul says that we who worship are served by the Spirit, he's, he's grabbing a term of priestly service, and he, he's saying that the church is the true priesthood of God. A, a priest is a mediator, one who mediates between God and man, and of course Christ Jesus is the one mediator, but through Christ, Christ in us, we become mediators of Christ, God to the world. We reveal God to the world through our lives. We are that priestly service as we worship, as we serve God. 
the true priestly people of God. In contrast to the dogs and mutilators of the flesh, we put no confidence in the flesh. They, they mutilated. Why? Because, and that was Paul's uh, kind of sarcastic reference to circumcision, by the way, mutilation. The, 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 the word, the circumcision and the word for mutilators, they, 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 they have the same root, so it was kind of a word association he was using. And, and so it, Paul was basically saying, uh, yeah, yeah, you think you're the circumcision, but you're the mutilators. You're so focused on the flesh, that's all you can think about. Gouging the flesh, but we are the true covenant people of God, the circumcision, the heirs of Abraham. We put no confidence in the flesh. And then Paul uses that expression, confidence in the flesh. He uses it once at the end of verse 3 and twice in verse 4 to turn his discussion from the dogs, the mutilators, uh, and us, the, the ones that are being opposed to the church, to himself and how he has been transformed and what this means. So that leads us to our second point. Who was Paul? Who was Paul? And he said, I know who Paul was. Well, let me reintroduce you to Paul. Allow me for a moment. Verses 4 through 6. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, or literally, I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh. This, this phrase is used twice in a row. Not good English, but good Greek. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. If anyone has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, it's Paul, the apostle, or Saul, if you want to call him that. One was his Roman name, one was his Jewish name. <clears throat> Paul has shown them two models of people, Timothy and Epaphroditus. We looked at this last week. Two models, examples that they could follow, but that by following them, they would be obeying the command to have this mind in you, which was in Christ, that made himself nothing, emptied himself, became a servant, obeyed God fully all the way to the point of death. Two models, Timothy and Epaphroditus, but now he's going to insert himself as a model, which is why when we get to the end of the chapter, he says, follow my example. This is what he is doing here. It, it fits perfectly well in the argument of the letter. <clears throat> What reasons does Paul list why he had reasons for confidence in the flesh? What, what are those reasons? He was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, now that means, yes, he kept the law from a young age, even before he had any control over it. But what it really means is that he was not only Jewish, but that he was the son of faithful Jewish parents. That's a big deal in there. Dude. That, was, that mattered. More than that, he was of the people of Israel, according to the flesh. He, he was no Gentile dog. In fact, it, more than that, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Yeah, well, what, what, what does that matter? Why would he list that as a reason to put confidence in the flesh? Well, J Benjamin, there's a couple of reasons. Benjamin, number one, was the only one of Israel's sons. Of 12 sons of Israel, only one was born in the promised land. So that made him extra special. Okay? So, so Benjamin, he was the tribe of Benjamin. And, oh, by the way, Israel's first king. Where did God go first to pick a king? Saul, who was of the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, and that's who Saul was named after in his Jewish name. So maybe there's a connection there. And oh, by the way, there were only two tribes left at this point. Ten had been long lost for hundreds of years. Two tribes are left, and that is the, 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 the Judah and Benjamin. So he's one of those existing tribes that can trace his heritage. <clears throat> it's a big deal. But more than that, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Well, Paul was from Tarsus, and my, some might have thought that he was a Hellenistic Jew. But so Paul makes it very clear here, and we know it from other aspects of his history, that he was raised in Jerusalem. He may have been born in the Greek world, but he was raised in Jerusalem, around the temple, trained up under the temple system. He was trained in Hebrew. He was trained in all that went on. He was a Pharisee. We'll get to that in a moment. It was a big deal, but, but, but to say that he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, yes, it's like saying, I'm the creme de la creme of the Jewish religion. I, 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 my pedigree is better than anyone's. It don't get better. That's why he was moving up so fast in the ranks of Jewry. He was a Jerusalem Jew. You remember over in 
the book of Acts chapter 6, that dispute that arose, we actually looked at that last week and looked, or a few couple weeks ago when we looked at disputes and arguing and murmuring. What, what, what did it arise from? You had widows who were Hellenistic Jews and widows who were Hebraic Jews. They had a little bit of animosity because the Hebraic Jews thought they were much better than the Hellenistic Jews because culturally they were Jewish, not Greek. Paul's a Hebrew of Hebrews. <laughs> He's on the one party, not the other. The, the better party, if you will, as far as the flesh goes. Regarding the law of Pharisee. Now, we, we think of Pharisees, and all we think of is bad, because in the gospel, particularly Matthew and Mark and some in John, they're, they're bad characters. John, mostly Jewish leaders. Matthew and Mark, bad characters. Luke's a little more neutral. Provides a little bit of space for grace with, with Pharisees, if you will. And, 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 and this is true, but... The, but if you look at them more broadly and understand their history, there's a lot to be thought of well. Paul lists this as a reason to put confidence in the flesh. Not like, well, I was a really bad guy. I was a Pharisee. No, I was a really good guy. I was a Pharisee. It's not how we think of it, but we have to enter his world and understand it that way. Pharisee means separated. Have you ever heard of uh, was it the Nazarite oath? Like, I think Samson was a, a, took a Nazarite vow. Um, involved a lot of different purity issues. It was not required of anybody, but it was a vow they could take. Well, Pharisees were of that ilk. They, they weren't Nazarites, but they were of that ilk, if you will. They, 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 they vowed to obey the laws that were really only given to priests. But they wanted to be so pure in keeping the covenant that even though they weren't of the priestly family, they would live as if they were under the priestly family in order to fully obey and please God. You know that priestly language that Paul uses of we are the ones who worship or serve God by the Spirit? He's grabbing priestly language. They, the Pharisees, thought they were the ones that were those people. But Paul says it's the church. There's a play there that's going on. And then Pharisees, they were very zealous for the law. And you know that from the Gospels. They were very zealous to keep the law and wanted everybody to do it. And then he says, as for zeal, so it's a natural transition from Pharisee to zeal. As for zeal, persecuting the church. Now we think that Paul's listing the worst thing on his resume, but actually you notice it's at the end of the resume. So in Paul's mind, this is the, the, the best thing, one of the best things on the resume. And that seems odd, right, to us, because we have a hard time understanding why anybody would, would out of religious fervor, start killing other people. What, what's going on in Paul's head? Why, why would they think differently like that? You see, for Paul, prior to his Damascus Road encounter, his persecution of the church made perfect sense. When Paul or any Pharisee spoke of zeal, they recalled a story that explains the motivation behind a leading Pharisee like Paul killing Christians. And that story comes from Numbers 25. You might not be familiar with it. Some of you might be, but it's an interesting little story. It's a story that kind of describes most of our natural bent towards self-righteousness that we have to be careful of and how we apply righteousness and how we respond to the things of God. But that aside, Numbers 25, verse 5, So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, the this false god, this idol worship. Verse 6. Then an Israelite man, now listen to this because this helps you understand Paul. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel. So, so Paul, or, or Moses has just gotten through telling everybody, the whole congregation, um, the, the, the judges, the leaders, you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to Baal. And while the people are weeping at the entrance of the tent, they're in repentance for their idol worship, here comes a dude strolling into camp in tow his Midianite wife. A Midianite woman that he's going to take in and get married to. He heads into his tent. That was forbidden because to be yoked to a Midianite wife meant to be yoked to Midianite worship of Baal. So you get the picture here. Not a pretty scene. Okay? Not a pretty scene. He's walking in. They're all repenting for this very thing that he's now doing. And notice what happens, verse 7. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them. 
right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the, the son of Aaron, the, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites since he was, listen to this word, as zealous for my honor among them as I am. I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell him, Phineas, that I am going to I, that I am making my covenant of peace with him. Pharisees wanted the favor of the Lord like Phineas had. Pharisees wanted to live for the honor of the name of God like Phineas did. Why? Because the Pharisees wanted that covenant of peace that Phineas was given. And that would mean that Roman oppression would leave. That would mean that the state would be free. That would mean that the place would prosper. Their motivations were actually quite good. A Pharisee's master story was that story in Numbers 25. That was his master story. That's what he conformed his life to. That's what he wanted to do. That was everything to a Pharisee. So... Understandably, the most natural thing to do to the church, these people that are bringing impurity and Gentiles into the congregation, that are bringing ideas of worshiping Jesus into the congregation, things that could be linked in their minds to idol worship, that that very thing to go and persecute them even to the point of their death was honoring the name of God. You got to you follow that, you're tracking with that kind of thinking, how it, they got there. It wasn't irrational in the sense that it, it, there was a story there to follow. Paul thought he was honoring God's name by persecuting the church. And then he adds this. Kind of the, 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 the cloak or the, 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 the wrap around it all. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. <clears throat> now if you imagine Paul prior to Christ, prior to meeting Christ on the road to Damascus, if you imagine him as a man laboring under the guilt of sin, completely unable to keep the law, you haven't heard Paul's testimony. That does not describe Paul. Paul's point here is not that he had failed to live up to the righteousness of the law, but that he had in fact lived up to it, but there was still a problem. It was not producing the peace that God's kingdom promised. The Pharisees were striving for God's blessing of peace that was promised to Phineas, and that was their master story, but, and that was Paul. But then something happened, and so that brings us to our third point. What happened to Paul? I mean, something happened to Paul, right? Arguably, the, the, the reality of Paul's transformation might be one of the best apologetics for the Christian faith that exists, because there's really no way to explain Paul Apart from an encounter with Jesus Christ. Doesn't, you can't get there any other way. What happened? Verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So I asked, what was Kermit the Paul talking about anyway here? We tend to think he's talking about the environment, but I want to suggest he's talking about being blue, which for him was being green. In other words, I want to get back to the original message and not just accept the secondary message here. It's easy to read this as Paul saying, quote, I was trying to get justified by obeying the law, but now I know that I am justified when I met Jesus and invited him into my heart on the road to Damascus, as if that's what had actually happened. But there are several problems with understanding it that way. And I, the first is enough to eliminate this idea. 
Whatever Paul describes here as gaining Christ, as being found in Christ, as having a righteousness through, the faith, of, through faith in Christ, whatever it is he's describing, in verse 12 he says that he has not already obtained it. So if he's talking about justification and he has not already obtained it, then we've got to rework our entire doctrine of justification. I don't think that's the solution. I think our doctrine of justification is very sound. However... Let me offer that the other alternative is that's not what he's talking about. Even though the language, even though the phrases are so easy to pick up and use for that dialogue, that's not what he's talking about. Then what is he talking about? Let me, let me help you here. What, what happened to Paul? That all gets back to, if you want to understand what he's talking about, you have to get back to what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. And in order to help you feel the impact like it might have been felt in the first century, I'm going to tell you a parable. Now, like all parables, especially those of Jesus, they can offend. And this one might offend. But please bear with me, knowing that that's a possibility. Please give me some 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 leeway there. If, if, if you think I'm making a political statement in this parable, I am not. I could tell this parable from a liberal perspective or I could tell it from a conservative perspective. I just happen to know my audience and know which one's going to get me the most offense. <laughs> and, and, and it's not that I want you to be offended, but I, I do need you to feel the offense if you are going to understand Paul. Because what Paul did was very offensive to the Jews. And so I kind of have to have you feel a little bit of offense, but please then don't hold it against me. It's my, my only request. So, here we go. A certain conservative male TV talk show host is heading down to the border to confront a caravan of migrants and call for their rejection upon re arrival. He points out that these migrants do not have the birthright to enter our nation. They don't have the education to benefit our nation. They can't speak our language. They are coming simply because they want a better life, but their government isn't threatening to kill them. And the foundation stone for this conservative talk show host is patriotism. I'm a patriot, and I stand for what this country stands for. However, 10 miles from the border... His SUV inexplicably stalls, so his whole group in his SUV exit the vehicle, and there's a blinding light and some thunder. This talk show host hears voices saying to him, Sean, Sean, why do you persecute us? I just, it just, that went well with Saul, so that's the only reason I picked that. <laughs> Sean, Sean, why do you persecute us? To which he responds, uh, who are you? And one voice says, I am George Washington. Another, I am Thomas Jefferson. And still another, I am John Adams. They continue, now get up, go to the border, welcome those poor migrants in, help them find jobs and education, feed them and clothe them. This hypothetical event does not invalidate Sean's previous concerns for the Founding Fathers' principles. It merely reveals their true meaning. Again, it's hypothetical, and this is merely a parable. Making no political statements here. However, I hope it helps you get a little closer to what went on with Paul. It would not change this talk show host's passion for America, but it would reorient how he used that passion. It would reorient his perspective on the purpose of this great experiment. Again, that's just a parable, but now back to the Damascus Road. Saul had lived his life trying to please the Lord God of Israel. He was persecuting the church to please God. He had then on this road to Damascus where he's going to arrest more Christians, he has a theophany, an appearance, a vision of God. He recognizes it with the light and everything going on. He recognizes that this is like what Abram had. This is like what all his, the patriarchs had, this vision of God. This is a theophany, a, an appearance, an epiphany of God. So he knew who was there in some sense. But of course, 
What is one of the things the patriarchs always asked when they had an, a, a vision of the Lord? What is your name? They always ask that. So what does Paul do? He's tall. At that time, was, we, we know him anyway. Uh, he, he says, who are you? But when he asked that question, the last thing he expected that, to, to hear as an answer is Jesus. Now that, that, that was not in the equation for him when he asked that question. When he asked that question, he might have thought, well, he's going to reveal himself to me by some new name. Well, indeed he was. <laughs> Just not the one he was expecting by any you know, stretch of the imagination. Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. When he answered that way, Paul realized that, the, that he was persecuting the very one he was trying to please. He was persecuting the very one he was trying to please. Now, you don't think that would rock your world? That would rock my world. I'm living my life for one purpose, and I now realize that everything I've been doing is against that purpose. And this changed everything about how he viewed obedience to the law. And obedience to God. What does faithfulness look like? How, how did this change his values and pursuits? Well, the key is found in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the master story. You see, Paul's master story in that moment on the Damascus Road changed from Phineas to Jesus Christ. It changed from Phineas, who achieved righteousness by driving a spear through these two, to Jesus, who attained righteousness by faithfulness to God and willing to be a servant, all the way to suffering to the point of death for the sake of those he has redeemed. A radically different and opposite story. And that one, my friends, the one about Jesus, that story reveals what God is truly like. Everything else is a shadow that kind of got us there. But then we get to the cross and we suddenly realize this is what it's all about. That God out of his zeal for a people. See, Phineas had zeal like God had zeal. But, but, but God out of his zeal for the people doesn't come and drive spears through everybody. No, God out of his zeal comes and receives the suffering that we deserve. Nails through his hands. Paul's impressive list in verses 4 through 6 where that list was all about his status in, in the Jewish religion which gave him power. He now considered that power rubbish as far as using it for his own promotion or climbing the power ladder. Instead, all that he has is now used, all the status, all the power he has is now used to do what? To empty himself for the benefit of others like Jesus did in Philippians 2, 6, 7, and 8. That's what Paul is now doing. His master story is changing. Paul refuses to cling to the law for his own exaltation, but rather empties himself of all the status that the law gives him for the benefit of others, for the sake of Christ, because of Christ. In other words, because of what Christ did. We know Jesus through the account of the gospel, that, that same gospel that's told in Philippians 2, 6 through 11 who even though he was in the uh, uh, form of God, did not grasp onto his equality with God to use it for his own uh, advantage, but, but rather made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. And being found in that nature of a servant, human likeness, he, he humbled himself and became obedient to God all the way to the point of death. That's the gospel. God, therefore, highly exalted him and made him king over everything, the short version of the next couple of verses. But that's the gospel story. Paul knows that story, but now he wants to know it experientially. To know Christ or to gain Christ in our text verses equals in context participation in his sufferings, being made like him in his death. Paul did not know Jesus in that way after he met him on the Damascus Road. Paul knew of Jesus and knew now new information about him and certainly knew him in some sense on that Damascus Road experience. But the rest of his Christian walk was all about getting to know him experientially, entering into his life experientially. It's like the difference. I, there was a day that I met Donna. And yes, I, if you, somebody had asked me, do you know who Donna is? I said, yeah, I know Donna. Well, but my knowledge of her today is vastly different after 37 and a half years of marriage than it was a week after we met each other. I still need to grow. I haven't already been made perfect. 
But I know her in a way that I could not have known her then because I now know her experientially. And that's what Paul is talking about. I want to enter into his sufferings. I want to I be joined with him. I want to live what he lived. I want to walk with him in everything. I want to empty myself for the sake of others. Paul is saying in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, that he is working out his own salvation with fear and trembling for God as God works in him to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He's making Christ's story his own story. Paul was transformed from wanting to be like Phineas to wanting to be like Jesus. From having the story of Phineas drive his life to having the story of Christ drive his life. What story has been driving your life? It's probably not Phineas. I'll grant you that. But I'll bet you you have a Phineas kind of story somewhere in there. And the gospel calls us to change that story to the story of the gospel. The story of Christ. Make that our master story. In the middle of verse 9, Paul says that he does not want a righteousness which is through the law, like Phineas, but a righteousness that is through faith in Christ. Now, there's a lot of debate about how that line should be translated, but all scholars would agree that the, the first and most natural way that anyone would translate that phrase is not through faith in Christ, righteousness through faith in Christ, but righteousness through the faithfulness of Christ. Now, the next phrase includes the faith, which is on the basis of faith. So right, he's not saying righteousness through faith in Christ on the basis of faith in Christ, like he's repeating himself and he forgot he just said it. That's not what he's doing. He's saying righteousness, which is through the faithfulness of Christ, and which we now have on the basis of faith in him. How is our righteousness on the faithfulness of Christ. Now again, not talking about justification. We're not talking about the free gift of righteousness here. We're talking about actual, lived out righteousness. The, the fruit of righteousness, which is through Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 11 in Paul's prayer. That fruit in our lives, that we live according to God's will. That kind of righteousness. Today we call that theological term sanctification. But that's what he's talking about here. And and. How is it that it comes through the faithfulness of Christ? It came through the faithfulness of Christ because Christ, in his obedience to the Father, obeyed faithfulness. That's what faithfulness is. All the way to the point of death. He never gave up faithfulness. He never ceased to be faithful all the way to the point of death. That's how we were redeemed. That's how this begins. And in our baptism, we are buried with Christ in his death, raised with him. We enter the story for the first time in our baptism by faith. But then we re-enter that story every day as we die daily and are raised again by the grace of God. That somehow we attain the resurrection of the dead. Yes, ultimately, that one, but that's not really, it's more than that. We keep receiving that salvation, the deliverance, the rescue, the, the ways that God raises us out of death. The more we put ourselves into risky situations, he keeps rescuing us. If somehow, in the middle of my prison, I might get out and... In the middle of getting beaten, I will be rescued. There's resurrection in all of it. Paul has begun thinking like Jesus Christ in, in regard to how he uses his power. And now he calls for us to do the same in verse 17 where he says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have, uh, have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. The one thing we'll discover, if we set out to follow Christ this way, is that it's not easy being green. In other words, it's not easy following Christ this way. It will mean seeking the benefit of others. It will mean intentionally emptying ourselves and obedience to God. <laughs> it will mean beware of the dogs, those who bring discord and those who, who, who come and mutilate the flesh, those who come with all the anger of Phineas, driving spears through one another, beware of them lest they be found in your own heart. And how quick are we to want to enforce our righteousness, something God's worked in us truly, upon others, 
in ways that are inappropriate. We think out of zeal for God and honor of his name, but often it's out of the wrong master story. What does it mean? It means for husbands that although you are stronger and can use your power to get your way, you instead humble yourself, counting that strength as nothing, at least not in terms of gain for yourself, and you use it to build up your wife for her good. Wives, even though you have the power of beauty and or of granting or preventing peace in the home to manipulate to get your own way, you give that power up, lost for yourself, and use all your power to serve your husband for his good. It means that as a mother who has the power to save or destroy life in the womb, that you do not use that power for your own gain, but for the benefit of that life within. It means that as people who have the right and power to use our spare time for leisure and pleasure as Americans, that we use the power to control our time, to use it for the service of others, maybe in prayer for the unborn, maybe in prayer for the church, maybe in prayer for our enemies, maybe in service to one another. It means that business owners who may have the power to be set for life, that they use that power instead for the essential needs of others who do not have those needs met. In short, Paul wants all of us to be transformed in how we use our power, whatever power we have, especially in our relationships with one another. This is the key to receiving that peace which God's kingdom promises. Amen? Now, I want you to know Christ experientially, but first, you have to have met him. If you haven't met Christ, let me encourage you today to seek out one of us here to talk about this Jesus and why he came for us and what that means for us, who he is, and how we turn our lives over to him in repentance and faith. That's the first step. Let's pray. Father, Lord, do, do etch these words, these truths from Philippians 3, from Paul's story into our souls. That we might change our master's story. That we might recognize where our Phineas story is. And how it needs to be changed to Christ's story. In Jesus' name, amen.